let's take a look. Word of God. All right, First John. Today, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be done. Uh, yesterday, Pastor, Trump, uh, Pastor Drew asked me, he said, how, how does it feel now that you're finishing up First John? I said, man, it feels kind of weird. Um, we've been journeying here for, I think, I think this is the 26th or 27th message in this uh, New Testament book. And I, I hope the Lord has used this book in your life to sanctify you and to strengthen you in your faith. Today we're going to, John is wrapping up and he's ends his letter with some certainties, three affirmations. Next Sunday we're going to look at his one final admonition. But these certainties that he gives to us here at the end of this letter. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. That is, what are you most certain of? What is it that you're most certain of? What, when you go to bed at night, what do you go to bed at night absolutely confident in? Maybe for you, maybe it's like, well, I know for certain that my husband or my wife loves me. And then life happens, drifting apart, maybe infidelity, unfaithfulness, not so certain. Maybe your certainty is, well, uh, I'm certain that my relationship with my kids will always be better than my relationship I had with my parents. And then they turn teenagers. <laughs> and then they move out. And it feels like there's this growing divide as, as our kids begin to live their lives. And, and we're not so certain that the relationship that we had hoped for would always be as we had always envisioned. Maybe your certainty is uh, financial security. You've, you've done your very best to, to regularly save and invest in your portfolio. Looked like it was rock solid. And then the real estate crash of 2008. And then inflation today. And now it seems like everything is just leaking away. The things that we think are certain. I mean, instinctively we probably know that in our minds, well, we hope those things are certain, but we don't necessarily, may not always put our hope in that and say, well, we believe that those things are certain. And maybe we're like, we, we resign ourselves to that state, statement that is most often repeated that there's only two certainties in life, right? What are those? Death and taxes, right? We, we, we resign ourselves and say, well, the only two things are certain are, are death and taxes. Well, <clears throat> John, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Paul, John, John, the Apostle, closes his letter to the church that he has written to the church in Ephesus, which he had pastored for a number of years earlier in his life. And before he signs off this letter, he ends the letter with staccato, in a staccato-like fashion, listing off certainties that we begin, that we possess as the children of God. Verses 18, 19, and 20 all begin with these three words, we know that. We know that. This isn't something that we learn through reading. We don't attend a class to learn these things. This isn't a, a, a truth that we begin to glean by experience. These convictions aren't formed to us by someone instructing us. When John writes, he says, we know. He says, we have come to understand these truths, and they become the bedrock upon which we live our lives. 
This is the revelation that God is giving to us and we become absolutely convinced that these are certain. Just as we as Americans believe that, we, that there are certain inalienable rights endowed to us by our Creator, the Scriptures here tell us that these are the things that we must know in deep in our soul as certainties. You say, what are these certainties? I'm so glad you asked. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Let's read God's word this morning and then we'll take a look at uh, what these uh, final certainties are is that, that John concludes his, closes his letter out with. Verse 18. It says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that, verse 19, that we are the children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Verse 20. We know that, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And just for fun, we'll read the final, affirm, uh, final admonition. Verse 21. Dear children. Keep yourselves from idols, which is what we'll look at next Sunday, all right? Lord willing. All right, so one of the three certainties that we possess, we can know as the children of God. The first certainty is this, our protection, our protection. And John tells us that we are being kept secure in verse 18. This is the first certainty, the first certainty that we can confidently uh, rest in the first certainty that we can know is that of protection. John says we are being kept secure. And notice how he develops this line of thinking in verse 18. He begins in verse 18. He says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin or does not continue sinning. We've come across this teaching throughout this letter that he's been writing and he's making the statement that the true children of God, those who have confessed in Jesus Christ are not those who continue on in sin. Now, he says that those who have been born of God, those who have been born again, that is, those who have repented of their sin, they have turned away from their sin and they are believing in Jesus Christ. That is, they're trusting in his death, his resurrection, for the, uh, the pavement for their sin, the forgiveness of their sin, John says those who have been born again do not continue in sin. Now, the scriptures are not teaching here. They are not teaching here that as we go along in the Christian life that we suddenly arrive at a place we're incapable of or we no longer sin. But rather... What the Word of God is teaching us here is that as Christians, we do not persistently live in a continued state of sin. As the children of God, we, we feel the struggle of Romans chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 5 between the flesh and the new man that God has planted within us. John is not saying that, that we have arrived at perfection in life, but he is describing here the direction of our life. The one who has been born of God, the one who has been born again, does not habitually, persistently, continually live in sin. This is the direction of their life. They're not going in that direction. 
Why is that? Well, the reason for that is translated as a semicolon in the NIV. Do you know the semicolons are a translation? In the original language, there's a conjunction there. A strong conjunction. It's a contrasting conjunction. It's the word but. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, but... Here's the reality, here's the certainty, but the one who was born of God keeps them or keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm them or cannot harm him. You say, what is this phrase that we're looking at here? But the one who has been born God, in the first phrase, refers to all Christians, Anyone who has been born of God does not continue in sin. Why? Because the one who was born of God, that is Jesus Christ, protects them or keeps them. Notice how Jesus Christ does that. The word here that is used in verse 18 for the one who was born of God keeps them safe, keeps them safe, or maybe your translation says protects them, has the root has at its root the idea of someone standing guard or someone standing post. Think of our military men who are standing guard or serving at a post, maybe in a demilitarized zone. What are they doing? They're standing guard and they're making sure that the enemy doesn't cross over into that section of military uh, freedom. They're vigilant. They're paying attention. They're observing closely. They're attentive. They're keeping Those who are there in that area, safe. They are protecting those in the area. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for every one of God's children. Everyone who are his brothers and sisters by faith in him. Jesus Christ is keeping you and I safe. This is what we read in John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer the night before Uh, He was crucified, prayed for his disciples, and ultimately he prayed for those who would believe in in him through their message. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus said, When I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Protect them. That you would keep them safe from the evil one. And this certainty that John is writing about here gets even stronger as he continues on in this argument of verse 18. Not only does the one who has been born of God not continue in sin because the one who um, was born of God, Jesus Christ, is keeping them. Notice what it says. And the evil one cannot harm them. The evil one cannot harm them. The, the, the devil that we know from earlier in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we know that the evil one refers to the devil. The devil cannot touch the child of God. The, the idea was says, the, and the evil one cannot harm them. Uh, your translation might say the evil one cannot touch them. Uh, the idea of harming them or touching them doesn't have the idea when you think, we'll just use the word touch. doesn't mean like, I'm going to walk up here and, you know, touch Dave, you know, it's not like just rubbing up and bumping shoulders with them. That's not the idea here of, of touching him. The idea 
There is that of harming them or, or, or controlling them or taking them into, the gra- into their grasp. I remember when our kids were little, they used to play peewee football. And, um, and so our, co- the, our kids' coaches, well, almost like our coaches too, and you'll get in a second here why we call, refer to the, our kids' coaches as our coaches. But um, our co- the kids' coaches would, would, would teach their kids the ta- tackling technique, right? And they would say, when you're, you're going to make a tackle, you, you get down, you wrap them up, and you drive them down to the ground, right? And so that was just drilled into our kids' heads and into our heads as parents, right? Wrap them up and drive them down. And so when Vicky's watching uh, the Dallas Cowboys or the Baylor Bears, right? <laughs> and she's like, she, I mean, she's Mr. Calling in life. I mean, she could have been Tom Landry's assistant. And, or whoever the guy is now. Um, and so she's screaming at the, so when the, when the linebacker just like throws his shoulder into somebody or the, or the, um, uh, the cornerback will just kind of like, you know, just kind of like toss a hand at, at the wide receiver. Vicky's like screaming at the television, wrap him up and drive him down. <laughs> and, and, she, and, and we named our dog Romo. And so he's like sitting terrified. He doesn't know what's going on. This is what the devil, the evil one, cannot do to the children of God. He cannot wrap you up and take you down. You say, how important is it for us to know this today? Why do we need to know this with certainty? What difference does this make when we're tempted and we're fighting the flesh? What difference does this make when our enemy is accusing our conscience and we're being reminded of our past? What difference does this make when the problems of life are persisting and it doesn't seem like there's any change and we're just being wore down and beat down? When life seems to have gone off the rails, is there any hope? When we take a look at our children and and we're just clinging to hope that our kids will come around or change or we don't know what to do next. Does this verse, verse 18, give us any certainty, any help? The devil, the evil one, cannot touch the children of God. He'll test you. He will certainly trouble you. He will torment you. He will tempt you. But he cannot touch you. He cannot wrap you up, take hold of you, and take you down. In our struggle with the flesh, we might and we will sin. But the devil doesn't get us back. The scripture declares that when we go through this life, in this world, we go through knowing. We go through life knowing that the one who was born of God, Jesus Christ, keeps everyone who has been born of God 
safe. And the evil one cannot touch him or her. If this is all that the word of God says, we could go home and we'd be filled. But the preaching calendar says, we got to go to verse 19. Look at the second certainty given to us in verse 19. Not only do we have the certainty of our protection that we are being kept safe, but our position, we have the certainty of our position, and that is we belong to God. Here we see and find that our position as the children of God is that we have a unique and we enjoy a unique relationship with God. Look at how verse 19 is crafted. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world lies under the control or in the power of the evil one. And so the first thing that we notice in this verse is there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between we and the whole world. So who are the we and what is the world that John is referring to? How, how do we understand these contrasts, these, these identities? Who are these groups that are referenced here in, these, in verse 18? Well, verse, or verse 19, verse, the we of verse 18 takes, verse 19 rather, takes us back to the we of verse 18. Everyone who has been born of God does not continue in sin. And so the we refers to those who have been born again. We who have been born again are from God. And this is not the first time that we've seen this. We've seen this again already in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, where John said that we, everyone lives in either one of two families. We either belong to the family of God or we belong to Satan. There's no neutral middle. We're either in the family of God or we're not in the family of God where we belong to Satan. We can use marriage as an illustration, right? Um, you're not married. You're, you're either, rather, you're either married or you're not married. You're not married until you both say, I do, and the preacher says, you did. Until then, you're not married. In the same way, you're either in the family of God or you're not. Now, here's what the Scripture is teaching us here. If that... If you have turned from your sin in repentance and you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of your life, believing that through his death he has paid for your sin in full, through his resurrection you can be forgiven and you can have new life with God, you have been born again. It doesn't say, listen, if you try really hard to clean up your life, if you, go, if you make a commitment to go to church, you'll be, you'll, no, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been born again. You are of God. Verse 19. When the Bible says that we know that we are of God, what does that mean? Does that mean that all of a sudden we become little gods, we're of God? And we're, what does that mean? Well, that's not what the scripture is teaching there. To say that we're of God means that we belong to God. We belong to the family of God. A way that we might want to illustrate that is we might want to think of party. I know that's a political word, and so that's, that word in itself is filled with all kinds of peril and trouble in itself, but just kind of stick with me on this, right? <clears throat> to say that we are from God is to say that we belong to God's party. Right? And let, just let me be real clear here. God's party is not Republican, and God's party is not Democrat. We got that? God's party is not conservative, it's not liberal, it's not American and everybody else. Right? We understand that. 
To belong to God's party means that we're no longer party to Satan. We're no longer in league with Satan. We're no longer in line with Satan. Instead, when we're of God, we are of God's party. Now, the Old Testament this week was reading in Exodus for my uh, quiet times, my daily devotions and that. And Exodus chapter 19, when God delivered Israel out of their Egyptian slavery uh, and took them into the wilderness, he led them to Mount Sinai. Do you know what God said to the Israelites at Mount Sinai? You guys know. Uh, there's, there are a number. There's 10 of them. <laughs> are we there? Okay, do we need to go back? Okay, let's start in Genesis. The Ten Commandments, right? Well, that's, what we th- well, that's what I thought we thought, we thought, we thought of Mount, when we got to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> but before God ever gave the Ten Commandments, you know what he said? Uh, to Moses... To, to Israel through Moses. Moses went up the mountain in Exodus chapter 19. The first thing that God says. You shall be my treasured possession. Among all people. For all the earth. The whole earth is mine. And you shall be to me a royal priesthood. And a holy nation. A treasured possession. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. You think about those three descriptions there. A treasured possession. The nation of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they belonged to their Savior. They were a royal priesthood. That that is that they were to be God's representatives here on this earth. They were a holy nation. Is that they were uniquely set apart for God's purposes on this earth. The Apostle Peter picks that verse up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And listen to how Peter applies this verse to the church, to the, to the body of Christ, to believers in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying is, you belong to God, and now you have been brought out of darkness into light, and you are to declare his praises. That's what John is saying here at the end of this letter. Don't forget who you are, that you belong to God. We are of God. Now, now don't forget, I said that there was a contrast here, that between the we and the whole world. Don't, don't, Don't miss the contrast. It says that the whole world lies under the control of who? Satan, the evil one, right? And as we have seen throughout this letter, whenever John references the world, he's not referencing material matter, rocks and dirt. He's referring to the systems, to everything that is set up against God and his word and his will and his people. He's referencing the people, the ways, the values, the beliefs of this worldly system. John says that this whole world where you and I find ourselves interacting and living every single day lies in the control of the evil one. Earlier in the service when Drew was introducing to us the new song that we learned this morning, 
He says we have all kinds of troubles in this world. And if we were to take a survey this morning and ask our neighbors, our co-workers, what's wrong with this world, we'd get a variety of answers, right? Some would say, well, what's wrong with this world is mm, economic inequality. There are the haves and the have-nots. That's what's wrong with this world. We just need to share everything and level the playing ground. Others will say what's wrong with this world is, is educational inequity. That there's, you know, some people have opportunity for advancement and other people don't. And some have the chance to learn and others don't. And that's what's wrong with this world. Some people will say what's wrong with this world is our racial divisions. Others will say what's wrong with this world is our, our politicians. And we would say amen. And, and, we, and we, others would say, well, what's wrong with this? We'd come up with all kinds. Of, some people say what's wrong with this world is, is the environment. It, we, you know, we got global warming or whatever we got going on with this world. That, that's what's wrong with this world. And the scripture is so clear. John gets right to the point, verse 19. He says, what's wrong with this world is this whole world is lying under the control of the evil one. The, wor the word that's used here for being under the control or being in the power of the evil one has a picture of, some, uh, of someone resting or reclining in the arms of another. The whole world is resting, reclining, in the grasp, in the arms, in the comforts of the evil one. And the implication is that those who are living under the power of Satan are being lulled to sleep in that condition. They don't even realize that they're, they're spiritually apathetic. They're asleep, they're blind, they're dead. And if we were to... to to follow up that survey about what is wrong with this world and we would press back and we say, well, we think what's wrong with this world is that the whole world is lying in the power of the evil one. There would be pushback with that. What do you mean? We're, we're free. You guys are the ones. Who, you're following an antiquated moral system. You're listening to some book that you're saying is inspired. You're the one that's going around saying that there's only one God. How ex exclusive and arrogant is that? That's how the world would respond to those who are of God. And so just this week, I was just started listing out what does the scripture say about our condition before we came to believe in Jesus Christ? What was our condition in this world? Listen to how the Bible describes our condition uh, in this world before we've come to believe in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The whole world lies under the control of the evil one because their eyes have been blinded. The drukpa people. 300,000 people blinded in imagining that there is life in Buddha. Yes. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are under the law. You're not under the law, but under grace. Sin's not an opportunity for a good time, it is a master. Galatians chapter 1, 4. Jesus Christ gave himself to, for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father. This present age, the Bible says, is evil, and there is no hope apart from a divine intervention. We watch uh, television shows that they have those interventions, right? That pe- you know, the, the hoarders have to have an intervention. The, the people who are addicted to substance have to have an intervention. Right? Listen, we need to be rescued. We need a divine intervention. We can't pull ourselves out of this. We're not going to get better and better. We're not going to, you know, economies can get better. Education can increase. Global warming can stop, whatever. Listen, Washington might get along, but we're not going to get ourselves out of this evil age without a rescuer. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 since the children of have flesh and blood he Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free all those all who all and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're not walking around free. We're enslaved. And the the slave masters holding over us the fear of death. And Christ came. In two weeks we're going to be celebrating his resurrection where he breaks that bondage. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and 18. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles being um, a reference to unbelievers. Do not live as the unbelievers do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This world's not enlightened. Our understanding, rather, is darkened. We're... Our thinking is futile. Our hearts by nature are hardened against God. And so when John says in verse 19 that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, this is what he is describing. Slavery, servitude, blindness, hardness, hopelessness. And the world, unbelieving world, is reclining, resting, imagining that this darkness, this hardness, this hopelessness, this slavery and servitude, this fear is life. And so in the midst of living in this world, John is writing to us as children of God, those who belong to God, in the midst of fighting against your flesh and recognizing that we're waging a war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Remember that you belong to God. The systems of this world are designed to be against you. This world is not our friend. And so we must know with certainty in the thick of the battle 
in the moments where life becomes unbearable, that we belong to the one who has overcome. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? When it seems like everything is against you, because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The song says, <laughs> we know how the story ends. This is the assurance, the certainty that you have in Jesus Christ. You belong to God. Let's take a look at our last uh, certainty our protection, we're being kept safe. Our position, <clears throat> we belong to God. The third certainty is our perception. We know him, we know the one who is true. Verse 20 again begins, we, also, we know also what? That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And I want you to notice the word true so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is, by, who is true by being in his son Jesus Christ. And he is the true God and eternal life. So the first certainty that we have here is our perception, the first certainty of our perception is we know that Jesus Christ has come. That is, Jesus Christ has arrived this is a certainty. We're not looking for someone else. We're not looking for another Messiah. We're not needing another Savior. Another Savior. Jesus Christ has come. No, some wrongly assume that Jesus Christ came and then he left. He's gone. But that's not the sense here. That Jesus Christ has come and he remains. That's the sense. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 assures us that Jesus Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always, always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7 25. Jesus has come and is now, and now is. And although we don't see him with our physical eyes, we know that he is. How do we know that? Because of the perception that God has given to us. Notice what he says. John says, we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding. That is, he has opened our minds to understand and accept the truth. Sometimes we say things like this. <clears throat> the light finally came on. Right? It doesn't mean that somebody turned the light switch on. Well, that might mean. What is, when we say that the light finally came on, what are we saying? They finally get it. Right? Vicky's always saying that to me. So my, if life finally came on, Kevin, you finally get it. Jesus came and he turned on the light so that we can get it. <clears throat> Why did he turn the light on? So that you may know him who is true. So you might know God. Listen. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I, we're never going to come to the truth on our own. 
We're not. Right? He needs to turn the light on so we can get it. Luke chapter 20, 10, verse 22. No one comes to the Father except the one, anyone to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. On our own, we're going to be walking around. Jesus Christ came, turned on the light. Verse 20, verse 20 goes on to say that... <clears throat> um, uh, That not only has he given us understanding, that we may know him who is true, it says that we are also in him who is true. We're in him who is true. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus Christ is the true God and the eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God and the eternal life. And I, I, I've directed your attention to those three times that the word true is used here in verse, at the end of verse 20. John doesn't say, this is the truth, although that is the truth. But what he's saying here is he says that, he's he's saying this is the true one, or this is the true God. And that word for true is not truth only. It means to be true in the sense of being genuine, in the sense of being real, in the sense of being authentic. Jesus is not fictional. Jesus is not pretend. Jesus is not false. He is the real one. You you think in in a couple weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter, and we're going to be remembering that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his triumph over the death and and the grave, and victory over sin through his resurrection. We're going to be celebrating all that, and between now and then, I haven't seen him yet, but I'm sure there's going to be specials on on, on the television those that will tell us that they, they found an, another ossuary, another collection of bones, and, and next to the collection of the bones, there's an inscription that's going to say Jesus Christ. And the question is, did they find the bones of Jesus Christ? Right? That's what the world wants to find, is did we find the bones of Jesus Christ? <laughs> nope, they're not, right? And so I'm just saying this, don't believe that, right? <clears throat> Jesus is the true one. He's the true God, and John says he is the eternal life. Have you, have you ever stopped to think about why you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Hopefully it's not, well, I was convinced by some preacher. Hopefully it's not when my parents took me to church from, you know, cradle to the grave. Hopefully it's not, um, you know, I just, I don't know what else to believe. I guess I'll give this a shot. Listen, the reason why anyone believes, you believe, I can believe, is that Jesus Christ has opened our eyes so that we can understand, we can believe that he is the true God and in him we have eternal life. John began his letter, you know, last fall when we started in chapter 1. It seems like forever, doesn't it? Verses 2 and 3, he started talking about the eternal life, that which we have seen and heard and that which we have touched, we proclaim, we announce to you. That in him is eternal life and with him there's fellowship with God and one another. What is eternal life? It is knowing Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, I have, con- I have not confidence. I have not confidence in my confidence. I place no reliance upon my own assurance. 
My assurance lies in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. I do believe in him and therefore I know I have eternal life. This morning, do you know that you have eternal life? And does this certainty make a difference in the way you wake up in the morning and go through your day? You and I, who have come to understand our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our friends, are lying under the power of the evil one. They're resting in his arms. You and I have a message to carry. For without him, Jesus Christ, there is no life. This past week, Friday, I was uh, visiting an 86-year-old lady in a nursing home. And so I sat down to visit with her, and I asked her, I said, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you hurting anywhere? And she looked at me with a smile on her face, and she says, hurting? That's the ingredients of getting old. (laughs) And within a minute, the conversation went to this. I know I'm living in my last house but I'm getting ready to see Jesus. Are you getting ready to see Jesus? Are you ready to see Jesus? When you know that you're protected, you have victory over sin, you're getting ready to see Jesus. When you know that you belong to God, you have been set free from the grip and the clutches and the grasp and the delusion of Satan in this world, you're ready to see Jesus. And when your eyes have been opened and you know him who is true, you look forward to seeing Jesus. Are you getting ready to meet him? Are you helping others getting ready to meet him? Let's pray.